Our Father and our God, you have called us together to come to a feast this morning, both now and during worship, a feast of your word, a feast of your spirit, a feast of your presence. It is our desire to be fed, to be nourished, to be strengthened, to be challenged, to be changed and transformed, renewed, and reformed in order that we may not only glorify you, but we may do a better job of serving you and following in the footsteps of our Lord. Therefore, our prayer is that the meditations of my mouth and of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, for we ask it in the name of your Son. And all of God's people said, Amen. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, said, The neglect of private prayer is a locust which devours the strength of the church. The lack of private prayer is a locust that devours the strength of the church. Which I think is one of the reasons why, although Spurgeon said this years after the Heidelberg Catechism was developed, the Catechism waits until the end to talk about prayer. It is built upon all the knowledge that you have received so far in the Catechism from who is God, who are you, your, your salvation, your relationship, uh, the sacraments and all that goes with the church. But the ending, the climax is let's talk about prayer because it's that important. And therefore, we finish today and next week Heidelberg Catechism by looking at prayer. We're going to look at the section that deals with how then do we put into provision or in action God's hallowedness, his providence, his purpose, and the progress of the kingdom. For you see, the last three parts, daily bread, uh, forgiveness, and not lead us not into temptation, all have to do is how to make this thing work. How does God do his work? And he does it that way, through those primary three movements. So, the movement of the kingdom of, of prayer, it begins with God's paternal relationship with us. We begin in praise, asking that his cause would progress by his providence, through his provisions, along with our pardon as God protects, which then concludes in our praise. If you haven't figured out, I like alliterations. And uh, try to figure out how to do this all with peace. So, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 6, verse 11 and 12. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that is the infallible and errant word of God, which you have heard, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And you may be seated. One of the things that Jesus is doing in this prayer is making us realize 
when we pray, we need to focus in upon the person and the character of God. That our requests come after realizing who God is. And therefore, the, the prayer begins with, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's, uh, it's that reason that we ask you to study your scriptures, to study the catechisms, to study the confessions, to study theology, good theology. There's a lot of bad theology out there, but good theology. And personally, I would say good reformed theology because with Spurgeon, I think biblical theology is reformed theology and reformed theology is biblical theology. And we can debate that, but not now because we don't have time. So you want to understand who God is as you come to prayer. Doesn't mean you have to know everything about him, but you're growing in your knowledge. And that's what I think this prayer is showing us. You understand who he is, and then you begin to ask what you need. It's almost as if he's saying, when you start praying, remind God who he is. Actually, remind yourself who God is as you begin to pray. And then you begin to put your request before him. So there are two of them that we're going to take a look at today. God's provisions and God's pardon. Fourth petition of on Lord's Day 50, question 125. What is the fourth petition? Give us this day our daily bread. That is, be pleased to provide for all our bodily needs so that we may thereby acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good and that without your blessing, neither our care and labor nor our gifts can profit us, that we may therefore withdraw our, our trust from all creatures and place it in you alone. And the thesis behind this is we are asking God to provide for what we need this day and every day, grateful for all that he does provide. So you can break down that answer in several different ways. One, God gives in order to provide our daily needs. Be pleased to provide for all our bodily needs so that we may thereby acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good. When you begin to say our daily bread, give us this day our daily bread, you are asking and you are saying he's the fountain of all good. Nothing that you have is of worth unless it comes first from him. And so you have like Psalm 104. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, they are filled with all good things. Psalm 104 talking about the creation. And all of the world waits to, have, to be fed by God in the giving of it. Now, I try to remind the birds that come to our little feeders all about that. The only reason you're coming here is because of the benevolence of one person who put the seed into the feeder and got a feeder that is squirrel-proof so that you would get it. And those little pesky squirrels would not get it. And then the same thing. Everything you have comes out of the benevolence and the goodness of God toward you ought to say something about stump, uh, grumbling, which is a common refrain through this, this petition. 
that if we, if we grumble to God about something we don't have, what are we saying about God? You're not a good, good God. You're not giving me what I need. I understand that. Not what I want, because we have a ferocious appetite for things we want. But you're not going to give me what I need. And he says, yes, I've given you everything you need. You just have to figure out how to use it. And that what I have withheld from you is something you don't really need. And accept it that way. So you can also go Matthew six twenty-five to 26. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Peg and I have a running joke because we'll say, well, let's go out to eat. Where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. Hold it. I'm, I'm about ready to, to open a restaurant called I Don't Care. Because I'll have a great number of people who will come. See, God never does that to us. He says, I don't care what you get. No, he says, I will give you what you need. If I can do it for the animals, for those little birds at your bird feeder, I'll do it for you. It takes a lot of worry off what you have and what you don't have. And where you, where you are in life. Second word is Daily. Daily, and if you have your new Reformation Study Bible, the full edition, I have a con condensed version, which does not have all the articles and, and the confessions, and it misses a few things to keep it small. It was a gift to me. I wouldn't have gotten it. But it's uh, in that Reformation Study Bible, it will tell you that this is the only place in all of Greek that this word is used daily. You, have, you do have a very unique word that Matthew used to describe what Jesus was saying. It means the ordinary ration. It's a subsistence, that what you need for living. One person I read said, this is your shopping list of needs. That's what the word daily means. It's not only a word that deals with each day. But if you look at the footnote that goes with it after our daily bread, it will tell you the bread for tomorrow as well. And what that says is that God gives us only, not only enough just for today, but also for tomorrow. The question is we have to be good stewards of what he has given us today so that it lasts through tomorrow. Now, everyone likes to quote George Mueller, or at least give him as an illustration. George Mueller, who ran orphan orphanages and all sorts of uh, ministries simply by praying every day that the Lord would give him what he wanted. And, and the Lord blessed him that way. But you know, that is more of a unique situation than it is common. The Lord gives you, as you pray for and ask for, he gives you what you need, not only for today, but for tomorrow. Therefore, as Wesley would say, when you receive your paycheck, 
You save all you can. You give all you can. You spend all you can. That's what that paycheck is for. And the saving and the giving is part of dealing with what's coming up tomorrow, especially the saving. Therefore, you put aside 10% of your paycheck for saving, maybe another 5 to 10% for retirement, because let me tell you, I was once at your age, and retirement does come. <laughs> and you need those funds when you are retired. So when you're calling and asking for daily bread, that's what you're asking for. It, the, it is, in a sense, not only are you asking for him to supply today and tomorrow, but you're also asking him to restrain your desire to spend and to be uh, wasteful in what he does give you. You're asking him to guide you in such a way that you will have plenty for tomorrow. And basically what you're saying is, we live in absolute dependence upon you, Lord. Now, help me to live that way and not to live as, this, as if I am going to have a whole bunch of paychecks and I have, I have everything that I need or that I want. That's good stewardship. You have some illustrations from the scriptures about daily bread. One comes from Exodus 16, where the people, some 600,000 men, which meant at least two, two and a half million people, are out in the desert. You don't get a whole lot of food out in the desert. And they were getting hungry, and God sent them manna. I, I love what manna means. If you take the word, the Hebrew word is manna, but if you translate it into English, it is, what is it? That's exactly what they, they went out in the morning and there was manna. And they said, what is it? Oh, it's manna. Because <coughs> they had never seen it before. But every day in the desert until they got to the promised land and they entered the promised land, God gave them their daily bread. And in fact, in line with what this prayer says, on Saturday he gave them twice as much so they wouldn't have to go out on Sunday and break the Sabbath. You see how these work together? Or Jesus in his ministry when he had a great crowd of 5,000 or 4,000 and it had been a long day and they were hungry and it was near the end of the day and there wasn't anything for them to eat. Took a, a, basically a kid's lunch and fed those 5,000 and those 4,000 men plus women and children. They were there. And he provided everything that they wanted. Everything that they needed at that moment. Now the next day they come to him. And they ask him to do it again. And what he realized is. And this is one of the temptations that was set before him in his life. That he could feed these people all the time. And they would love him and make him king. But he said, that's not my ministry is feeding you. My ministry in the feeding was to show you who I am. Because only God can take a little kid's lunch and feed that many people. I, I laugh and we make a joke about people who when we have a fellowship meal it's getting 
close to the end and we're running out of food and someone says, pray for it to be multiplied. And I go, no, pray that you would have been better stewards about what we needed. <laughs> That's the idea of this prayer. Yeah, he provides, but he doesn't provide simply to show, to give you what you want. He provides for the needs that you have. Third word in that is our. Notice it doesn't say, give me my daily bread. It's a plural. That means we are to pray not only for ourselves, but others in all areas of life. Pray for people that they have food and clothing and housing, employment and justice and all that they need. And we definitely need to pray for those who are in Africa and Asia especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who are under great persecution and really have very little. I mean, they, they come over to America and they walk into Kroger's and they look at all the food that's on those shelves and they go, man, we don't have anything like this. But also pray for those who are in Trotwood who are cleaning up after the hurricane and provide for them. It is our daily bread. One of the things it does, it keeps us connected with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other people to show them the love of Christ when they are there. So in praying, you are also part of the answer and therefore you are generous in your giving. And secondly, our gratitude, in our gratitude, we express for his glory. That without any of your blessing, neither our care or labor nor your gifts can profit us anything. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and feed, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Have you heard that verse somewhere else? Yeah, Matthew records that the first temptation of Jesus, just take these stones, turn them into bread. Then you won't be hungry after 40 days. Now, man doesn't live by bread alone. We live for the glory of God. And our prayer is that if he gives us our daily bread, we are people who glorify him and use it for his glory. One of our chief evils, especially here in America, is our self-reliance. We rarely think about yes, tomorrow's food. Why? I can go to Kroger. They got all this food. I can buy all the Twinkies, donuts, and bagels that I want. Isn't that the proper food to eat? Forget the veggies. Let's go for the Twinkies. Well, we can get all that we want, so we make ourselves self-reliant. And we have to realize, if it were not for God to open his hand and give it to us, we would have nothing. It's one of the great benefits of living in this country. It's one of the great blessings that God has given to us, for which we ought to be eternally grateful. On the other side, you have something like Numbers 11, when the people began to grumble about manna, we had manna burgers and manna pancakes and manna bread and manna, you name it, everything had to be made out of manna. 
And they kept grumbling about it, even though it had graciously come from the hand of God. They never had produced it and they needed to produce it. And so God says, okay. You know, and part of that grumbling goes, let's go back to Egypt. I mean, we had leeks and we had onions. We had all these great foods over there. And it's, you know, it should be one of the phrases that ought to be in there. Yeah, and you were in slavery while you were there. Come on. It's not, but it ought to be. But what God says, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you quail till it comes out of your nose. That's a lot of quail. And after a while, they got sick and tired of quail because they grumbled about God's gracious, glorious provision for who he is. Um, If you go on a diet, one of the things I'll tell you is stay away from cereal. Eat eggs. I have been eating eggs for the last uh, uh, 12 months every morning. And when I crack those eggs, I'm going, eggs again? Why can't I have some oatmeal? No, can't have oatmeal. And then I realize, no, uh, this is good for me. This is what the Lord wants me to do. And thirdly, to depend upon him above all else. That we may therefore withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it in you alone. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And there's another verse that says, I've been young and I've been old and I've never seen the Lord's people forsaken. He feeds the lions, he feeds the animals, and if he feeds them, obviously he's going to be able to feed you and do that. So that's the fourth petition. You glorify God by rejoicing in his provisions and you ask him what you need for now and tomorrow. Not necessarily spend it on what you want. I mean, I'd like to have a Mercedes 360 flop top down, put on my little ball cap, run around driving like an old man who's going through a midlife crisis. But that's not what I know he wants me to have. Basically, because you're a pastor and if you drive around a Mercedes, people think it's really strange. How much money does that guy make? So that's what the fourth petition. The fifth petition is God's pardon. What is a fifth petition? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us miserable sinners our manifold transgressions, nor the evil which always clings to us as we also find this witness of your grace in us that it is our full purpose heartily to forgive our neighbor. And the thesis with this is the more mature you grow as a follower of Jesus, the greater you see your sin and sinfulness, and the more you appreciate Christ's life, death, and resurrection, resulting in a greater humility about yourself and a greater compassion for others and their sins. You know, here we are, God's pardon of us. Be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us miserable sinners, 
our manifold transgressions nor the evil which always clings to us. I read a phrase like to us miserable sinners and I think in our day and age we don't say that. You're just a sinner. No, you're a miserable sinner. And you just may not realize how miserable you are. We have to recognize the gravity and the extent of that pardon that came to us. The gravity is seen in what it took to order in order to be able to pardon us by God. That selfless, all-sufficient sacrifice of his son. Of a life that was lived, lived to perfection, of a cross in which he gave himself in order to bear the wrath of his father that we deserve, tasting death and then being raised from the grave. And that was all to bear our sin in order that we could be set free. You have something like Psalm 51, 1 to 4, or Psalm 143, 2. Enter not in judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And then you go to the extent. The extent to which we are forgiven is to the uttermost. Each and every sin you have, are, or will commit has been paid for on the cross. Every sin. You know, we do something and we think, God can't forgive me for that. Yes, he can. It's already been taken care of if you're a follower of Christ. Therefore, you don't have to go to him cringing in that sense. If you are a follower of Christ, if, you are, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, everything's been wiped out. And, and the idea of forgiveness is not that God forgives and forgets. God cannot forget. But that God forgives and he will never recall it to you. Zephaniah 3 talks about how God is a God who is great and mighty. And God grants to us his forgiveness. And it goes this way. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And why can he do that? Because Christ has paid for the penalty of your sins. Or from Micah, 7th chapter. This is what happens with new Bibles. You can't get to them real quick. I know it's in there. I saw it this morning. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot that he will stamp them out he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And as one person once says, God has no fishing pole to bring it back out. It's gone. And the depths of the sea is so far away. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's how God treats our sins. That's the extent and therefore, 
you know you are absolutely forgiven. But the question then arises, and why do we have to ask for forgiveness of sins? If they're all paid for, well, you have to understand the dual way in which God forgives sin. One is your pardon, or the full pardon that comes from the cross, the all-sufficient sacrifice, that you have been justified. And again, we talked about this with the confession, that you have been declared righteous, absolute righteous, because of Christ and because of him alone. And he is at work. You are accepted and adopted. And he is now in the process of cleansing your moral character. That's the full pardon. But there is also a daily pardon. Though that relationship is secured because of Christ, yet the fellowship we have with God can be broken and we continually need to repair that broken fellowship. Jesus, on the night before he died, was washing his, his uh, disciples' feet, John 13. And Peter puts up a big fuss about it. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And he, Jesus looks at him and said, if I don't wash you, you're not cleansed. And then he goes on to say, verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And that's an indication of our need for daily pardon. We walk in a dusty world that gets dust all over us. And that needs to be taken care of. I'm, one of the illustrations is a parent and a child. A child can be rebellious. A child can do all sorts of things. But they have a relationship with a parent that's unbreakable. It's my child. Even if they're an adopted child, they're my child. That relationship remains intact no matter what. Now the issue may be the fellowship we have as they do something wrong and go hiding in the corner or behind the couch or run out of the house or do anything like that. But the relationship is always there. The fellowship has to be repaired. And that's what daily pardon is all about. Repairing that fellowship. You see, what we need to remember is in the Christian life we have both Easter Holy Week and Easter, and Pentecost. And in between we have the Ascension. So we have the full pardon during Holy Week with Easter. We have Pentecost where we're given the Holy Spirit in which to live a new life and the Holy Spirit will work to convict us of our sin. But we have in the Ascension one who intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God for our sinfulness. And he is always interceding. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't take a trip. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he is talking to the Father about what you go through. And he is always in the process of rebuilding that fellowship that has been broken. And therefore, part of what will happen is the Holy Spirit is going to thrust you in to the second part of that phrase. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we also find this witness of your grace in us, that is, it is our full purpose heartily to forgive our neighbor.
Why are we to forgive? Because we have come to know the grace of God in its fullness, and we are called to pass that on as his children. Ephesians 4:30. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, and here's the stinger, as God in Christ forgave you. I can never forgive that person for what they did or said or how they looked. And then you have to remember, how did God and Christ forgive you? And you say, that's how I'm supposed to forgive. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then Jesus, at the end of this prayer, Jesus tacks on that little two verses, or Matthew puts it two verses. But if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's not that forgiveness is quid pro quo. That God will only forgive you if you forgive others. But it is that you de demonstrate your forgiveness from God as you forgive others. If we understand how much we are forgiven, we will be like God in Christ, able to forgive others. And once, and I'm not saying, nor does the scripture says, it's easy. It's extremely difficult. It's painful. You have to swallow your pride sometimes, which is really a difficult thing to swallow. I mean, it gets caught in your throat when you have to do that. You sometimes have to lose things that you once had in the forgiveness. But it is absolutely essential if you are a follower of Christ to do exactly that. The passage that demonstrates this comes from Matthew 18. They've been talking about forgiveness and if your brother sins against you, forgive him. And Peter, verse 21, pipes up and said to him, I know, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You've got to realize how generous Peter was. Rabbinical law said you only had to forgive three times. Fourth time, pow, you were free. He says, let's double that and I'll add one for good measure. Good boy am I, aren't I? Doing that. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times in one day. That's the implication. It's not in your whole lifetime at 77 times. It's every time, every day that you're with that person, 77 times. And then he tells the parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. If you look at your footnote, it will tell you a talent is worth 20 years wages. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of working. At 50 years of an average lifespan of being able to work, that means it would take 4,000 lifetimes to pay that back. And you only have one. I mean, just, just making the point, this is astronomical. 
There's no way you could ever pay it back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I can see the, the master going, are you kidding me? You can't even come close to paying me. Someone once figured it out that 10,000 talents at that time would have been worth $6 billion. Now we have people who could just open up their wallet and pull out $6 billion. But the idea, it was so astronomical, nobody, not even Getty and all the rich men in the world could ever be able to pay a debt like that. He says, I'll pay you back. No, you're not going to pay me back. There's no way. And so he has mercy on him. And he lets him go. Servant goes out. Finds someone who owes him 20, uh, what is a 100 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. So 100 days wages, which makes about four and a half months of work. Compared four and a half months of work, 100 denarii with 10,000 talents. There is no comparison. One is so infinitesimal, so tiny in relation to the other. It says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And when the servant began to choke the, the, uh, the other servant, and he began to cry out, be patient with me and I will pay you everything that you, have, you need. Same words that the, the first servant had given. And he throws him into jail because he couldn't forgive. Let me personalize it, okay? Because we sometimes just let that go. This is our debt. Estimate in your life that you sin one time per minute. And that's an extremely conservative estimate. You probably do at least 360 times per minute. Every time you take a breath and you don't say praise God, you have sinned. Every time your heart beats and you do not thank him for that, you have sinned. Not only in thought, word, or deed, but the things you failed to do that you ought to have done. But just take one per minute. That's about 60 per hour. I think if my math is right, that's 1,440 per day. Now for me, and I figured this out, I have lived 25,111 days. Oh, I'm feeling real old right now. <laughs> Over 25,000. And if you just took that conservative amount, that means I have sinned 36,159,840 times. And that's if I've only done it one a minute. If I've done it 60 times a minute, every second, multiply that by 60 and you are in the billions. And every one of us is like that. The only advantage you have is you haven't lived long enough to get up to the 25,111 days. So you aren't up at 39,000. But you're getting there, or 36 million, excuse me. But you're moving that way. And if God has forgiven every one of those sins, 
Put that in comparison to somebody who sins once against you, maybe twice, maybe three times in the same day. One of the things that the Spirit does as you grow is He shows you the depth of your sin more and more and more and more. So you recognize how much you need the Savior and His full pardon and His justification. And you also realize how much compassion you should have on that person who has done very little towards you in relationship to what you have done before God. Do the math and bring it home. You know, we think, oh man, well, if I sin a couple times a day, that's it. Now, not even close. And that's why you forgive, can forgive other people. Immediately. You look at them and say, you haven't done anything to me like what I have done to my God. And my God in Christ has forgiven me. Therefore, I in Christ can forgive you. If we do not forgive, this is what it shows. We are not forgiven and therefore we're still under God's wrath. That we haven't understood how serious and how miserable creatures we are and we have not really flown to God for his salvation and the fullness of that salvation. And we're simply fooling ourselves into thinking, I'm okay, you are okay, God's okay, we're okay, that's okay. It's not that way at all. Every moment, every second of your life, without Christ, you are underneath his wrath and you are simply heaping up more and more of his wrath every time you do something. You take a breath as one more amount put into God's treasury against you. And unless that treasury is laid upon Christ, it will one day be laid upon you. He is the only one who can purchase and buy it. If it's not that we have not been forgiven, then we do not understand our forgiveness. We take too lightly what we do or what we don't do. And we don't understand what God is doing every time he forgives us. He's looking at his son. He's remembering what he threw upon his son on that cross. And he's saying, it's paid for. You know, this is what, when we meet God in the final, in our, when we finally meet him, whether it's our death or he comes back and he looks at us, we will not be, if we are a Christian, we will not be judged for our sins because God says, I have forgiven and will not recall those sins. What he will judge us is how well we've served him. And one of the ways we serve him is by forgiving others. That's part of the equation. Thirdly, we show a hardened or hardening heart which will cause us spiritual and relational damage. You might want to go back to Greg's podcast from last week. To not, basically what he was saying is to not forgive means you lose the opportunity to mature, grow, and build your Christian character. And you grieve the Holy Spirit who is within you. 
Because the Holy Spirit is holy and the Holy Spirit is taking all that Christ and God has done for you and trying to apply it to your life. And if you are not forgiving, you are hampering his work. You are hampering your own growth. Some people bewail the present state of the church in America as well they should. And I think one of the reasons the present state of the church in America is the way it is is because people don't forgive one another. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it in congregations I work with. You have two or three families that walk in. They sit, sit in different places in the congregation. One here, this, this is not you guys, don't worry. One there, one there, one back there. They never talk with one another. Why? It's the Hatfields and McCoys. They cannot forgive. And you wonder why nothing is happening in the church. And every time you begin to talk about this, they go, I'm not forgiving. They've got to forgive first. I'm not forgiving. Well, who forgave first in your life? You or God? God forgave you 2,000 years ago on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. And he applies it not only when you come to faith, but each and every day. But it's always our necessity to forgive one another. And that builds our character. And on the other side, you lose things if you do not forgive. You lose opportunities. You lose to know the love of God in Christ for you. You lose the opportunity to be reconciled to another person. And basically what you lose is your own peace of mind. The other person may not even realize what they did. And they're walking around very happy and joyous because they don't know they hurt you. And you're walking around grumpy and grumbling because you are reliving that sin over and over and over again. And you're losing what God has given to you. And fourthly, we witness poorly to God's love and grace and transformation. Well, if this is the way Christians treat other Christians, why should I ever become one? Have you ever heard that excuse? I have. If this is how they treat one another, why should I become? I mean, I can go down to the Rotary and the Lions Club and they treat each other better than that. Now, forgiveness is absolutely essential. It is absolutely necessary. And it is a way in which God is praised and honored. Imagine being able to witness, to, to forgive somebody and to be a witness of that forgiveness to someone who has hurt you deeply. That shows the beauty of who God is and what his work. It shows the kingdom at work within you, progressing. And the kingdom at work progressing among individuals. And it shows the providence by which God takes us through those times. And how he is available to us. And so every day, give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us what we need in order to prog progress your kingdom. And work under your providence and praise your name. And oh, by the way, Lord, not only pardon me, but help me to pardon others. 
because this is one of the daily needs I have more than anything else. I'd like to use the example of guys who cut me, people, not, not, not guys, people, because sometimes it's women who cut me off in traffic. You guys probably are tired of that. And my first reaction is, <laughs> my second reaction, oh Lord, help me to forgive. Give me the strength to forgive that person. And then my third reaction is, and bless that person because they need it mightily. They are in real trouble if they keep driving like that. But you see, that's daily needs and the pardon of forgiveness. That's what it's all about. My hope and desire and my prayer for you is that you are someone who prays for those daily needs and you do not forget it. And you are someone who forgives as you have been forgiven in Christ. And you show the love of God to a watching world. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we began by asking you to spread a table of good bread for us to eat. It is great bread when we realize how you provide for us in all things. It is better bread when we realize that you have provided for us the ability not only to be forgiven, but to forgive. It can be crusty bread when you call us to be forgivers and to be satisfied with what you have given to us each and every day. But our prayer, my prayer for those of us here and for this congregation, that we may be indeed be people who are not only adopted, but being adjusted by your spirit to be more like Christ. Let us take his words, let them be sunk deep into our soul and let them work themselves out in our midst and among us for your honor and for glory and for the progression of your kingdom. For we ask it in Christ's name and everyone said, Amen.